Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt, and welcome to the show. How did everyone survive this week? Did you get to do some fun family things? Did you get outside? Did you see old friends? Hope everyone had a fun and safe week. I, for one, realized how much I missed the forests of northeastern North America, getting back into the rolling glacial landscape and enjoying maple beech hardwood forests. And most importantly to me, as someone who does their work in southern Appalachia, getting to see large stands of surviving hemlocks that haven't yet been hit by the hemlock woolly adelgid. It was great, but I am happy to be back hanging out in the Midwest. I missed all my houseplants and our, our pet frogs, but... Today is something really exciting. I have a great conversation for you. Joining us is Dr. Eric Golbronson. He is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and his specialty is paleoclimatology and paleoecology. He has a very strong geology background, but he has since expanded his horizons and looks at fossilized ecosystems to help not only infer what happened with climate change in the past, but how that can help us in a predictive way moving forward in the Anthropocene. Most notably, he recently discovered the oldest fossilized forest on Antarctica. That's right, Antarctica was once a lush landscape, or at least a much more diverse landscape than it is today, and much of Dr. Goldbronson's work focuses on the plant species and their remains and what they can tell us about what life was like during that time period. It's a fascinating conversation and one you definitely don't want to miss, but before we get to it, I've got a few orders of business to take care of. First off... We still have stickers for sale. Indefensiveplants.com slash shop. Head on over there and check them out. It's the beautifully designed Indefensive Plants logo brought to us by Tom Pearson Designs. And every purchase of a sticker, 50% of that money goes to orchid conservation efforts here in North America. So I donate half of every purchase to the North American Orchid Conservation Center. So it's going to a good cause. And they look great. They're waterproof. You can put them anywhere. And it's a great gift for loved ones. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support it, please head on over to patreon.com slash plants and see what we got going on over there. For a little bit of money each month, you get yourself kickbacks like stickers, access to the VIP section of the indefensiveplants.com website, and for those of you looking to get just a little bit more in return, you can even get yourself a producer credit on this show. Pretty fancy, huh? For instance, today's episode is produced in part by Brian, Mark, Katharina, Renz, Bendix, Arane, Holly, Clifton, Shane, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, Sienna and Garth, Troy, Margie, and Laura. So thank you to everyone who has given thus far. It really does mean the world to me, and every little bit helps. I mean it. If multiple donations are not your thing, you can give a one-time donation of any amount. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com, scroll down on the right-hand side of the page, and click that donate button. If money isn't your thing at all, which I completely empathize with, as a uh, poor grad student over here. At the very least, consider subscribing to and reviewing this podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to download it. Every time you sign on to something like iTunes or Stitcher and you see, uh, hey, you might enjoy this podcast, they use reviews to make those recommendations to you. So every time you give In Defense of Plants a review, you're helping others discover the world of botany. And the goal of In Defense of Plants is to cure plant blindness one episode at a time. And with your help, we can hit that goal. All right, entirely enough rambling for me. Let's head on over my conversation with Dr. Goldbronson. I hope you enjoy.
All right, well, Dr. Bronson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Eric Gilbronson. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I am a geologist. And uh, for the past uh, seven years or so, I've taken a departure from studying just straight-up rocks to studying plants that now have turned into rocks, so fossil <laughs> plants. All right, well, you beat me to the punch. I was going to say, what's a geologist doing on a plant a podcast? But that answers it. What did that switch entail? When did you start looking at uh, fossilized plants instead of just minerals? Okay, oh, two, twofold. So um, <laughs> when I was in graduate school at UC Davis, um, I became more increasingly interested in, in the world of plants and the life of plants and how they, say, interface with the soil that they grow in. Um, but I didn't really know much what to do with that. And then I had this opportunity to work in Antarctica, and they wanted me to work on these particular soil form minerals. And I realized that type of project wouldn't be tenable down there, just because the area in Antarctica doesn't have those kinds of minerals. So instead of just saying no, I tried to scour the literature to see what I could work on in Antarctica. And I found this immense array of beautifully preserved fossil plants and so I came up with this idea to study kind of the biology of these fossil organisms. And that's how I got my start uh, looking at plants. And, and from there, I've continued that work in Antarctica to the present day, studying fossil plants. But I also study uh, modern living plants and how their biology affects their, their chemistry and their chemical makeup. That's super exciting. That's a really interesting turn of events for a geologist. But uh, so much to ask about there. But before we get to that, let's give a little bit of back, uh, background about your current research. Um, you know, you're what we call a paleoclimatologist, paleoecologist. What does that mean, I guess, in the context of your research? Yeah, exactly. No, um, what that means is uh, what we have in the fossil record, for example, is kind of the beginning, the middle, and the end of various paleoclimatic or paleoecologic events. So things like climatic changes going into or out of an ice house climate to a greenhouse climate. We have a record of that in the rock record of Earth. The same is true for the evolution of life. You know, we have an array of different species, be they vertebrates or plants or microorganisms, and we can kind of see how those organisms evolve and change over time. And so from a paleo standpoint, this gives us a unique perspective on our world in the sense of looking at it from its history, um, its natural history, and how these organisms, how life on our planet adapts to or alters um, the Earth system, the Earth's climate, the, or the biosphere, and the interaction of these different spheres, like the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, and the soil. Okay, so essentially you're using the past and kind of understanding that processes, the laws of the universe and the laws of physics don't change much, but you know, how do you go from, say, a mineralized fossil or, uh, you know, a, a piece of sedimentary rock lying in the ground to kind of projecting what life or the, even the climate was like back then? That kind of feels like saying, oh, I found a dead body. What was the weather like? So, yeah, the way we do this is we try to, you're exactly right, we kind of like embrace these physical or chemical laws that we don't expect to have changed all that much, like the conservation of mass, for example. Mm -hmm. um, we use it as a starting point to begin to understand what kinds of things on Earth today, when they form, say a mineral forms in a soil, it may actually encode in it some information of like the temperature that the mineral formed at or the rainfall or the rainfall history that led to the water in that soil that later a mineral would form from. And so from a paleoclimatic standpoint, if we're talking about temperature 
or rainfall, we start looking at different kinds of, you know, what we might think of as geologic substrates like minerals and how they might actually encode information about the environment that they form in. And then it becomes a puzzle for how to extract that information out of a mineral. And to that, we use different kind of chemical techniques. And we're able to basically determine what kind of temperature range a certain mineral formed at. So that's the paleoclimate side of the story. And that's largely how we reconstruct paleoclimate in Earth history. Uh, on the paleoecologic side, it becomes interesting. We want to know, you know what kinds of organisms live in a certain ecosystem. Just focusing on plants. What kinds of uh, understory or tree organisms inhabited one space? And that's kind of what we get at our initial kind of fieldwork, is a sense of who was living here at a time, what was this ecosystem structured like. We can get that information immediately uh, from the rock record in the, in the field. But almost immediately, we want, we want to know more. We want to know more about how these organisms live. Like, were they stressed? Were they in a symbiotic relationship with something else? And so there, that begins a thread that involves a whole slew of different research objectives that really requires like collaboration with multiple different experts. So, for example, I kind of focus on the chemical makeup of these plants. I know that if I, you know, search diligently enough within fossils, I will find fossilized sugars, fossilized proteins, and I can extract that and get really intricate information for how that plant lived in response to its environment. But then if I want to know, does this plant have like a symbiosis with like a mycorrhizal fungi or a nitrogen-fixing bacteria, then I might need to call upon my, my colleagues who know more, more about the anatomy of those plants. And we can look at these plant anatomical features under a microscope and begin figuring out the presence or absence of certain kind of symbioses. Or if a tree had a certain kind of response history to its environment and it changes the way it produces wood – um, one of my colleagues can, de can detect that pretty well. Wow. That's fascinating. And, you know, just from the casual observation, you go to a museum, you look at a fossil, you say, oh, at least we know what it looked like. But it sounds like with the right kind of detective work and, like you said, these collaborative efforts, you can go so much deeper and kind of, uh, you know, with some good detective work, find out what the life was like for that organism, you know, millions of years ago. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's like the that's like the holy grail you want to search for is like how these organisms were they responding? You know, not only how diverse were they, like how many numbers of X plant you know was there in a given ecosystem, but what was its role? You know, did a fern who inhabited a tree-like habit outcompete other plants for light and nutrients? We want to know those kind of answers to those kind of questions. And um, yeah, it's only by like kind of cobbling together as many lines of evidence as we can because these are fossils they are not completely articulated you know we only get fragments of organs of a specific plant type we have to kind of jigsaw puzzle that back together so we're, we're we have a kind of a difficult thing to work with here and so it's trying to cobbling multiple lines of evidence together to arrive at these more nuanced questions Right. And I would assume that as these lines of evidence start, you know, piecing themselves together or coming in, you're getting results from your different collaborators. You know, are those moments kind of like goosebump moments for you? It's it really oh. does kind of feel like you're looking back into a window of time, but a very specific time period that that worked on the scale of that particular organism. It, it totally is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a totally a goosebumps moment. And that's happened many times <laughs> in my like even in the field too, like working with people and having like different expertise, you know, realizing that say fungal symbionts of plants can be preserved is kind of an eye-opening thing. And then realizing 
that you find, a, like I found a fossil forest three years ago, it had 37 trees in it. Like at least five or six of those trees were, were decayed. They actually were fossilized wow. as a decaying stump. And um, they have this like morphologic evidence suggesting that the fungal agents that contributed to that decay were actually preserved in those fossils. And so just collaborating with that person who was there in the field with me allowed me to actually extract those fossils and sample them in a way that I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. And so that opens up our eyes and, and you know, my own eyes into like what really the fidelity of the fossil record is for like plant biology and paleo plant biology. It just really becomes illuminating. Or this like, uh, one time I, I was do, doing these analyses for a colleague on some wood from Ethiopia that's 28 million years old. <laughs> and uh, just by happenstance, I, I'm, I was measuring isotopes of nitrogen and coming off of the instrument was evidence that these, you know, some but not all of these plants had symbioses with nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And so then that launched a whole new study into, like, the origins of, like, nitrogen-fixing symbioses in the rosids. It was a really fascinating kind of serendipitous oh. moment. Wow, that that's incredible. And I'm really happy you kind of outlined it that way because – you know, you always hear people saying, well, we don't really know what we can do with this. We don't even know what technologies are going to exist in the next decade or so. Uh, this is why this stuff is so important. But what you just described, too, is also just the diversity. We don't know what it what we can find with what we have now, depending yeah. on who looks at it. Just the diversity of backgrounds and thoughts and ways of looking at things can really unlock new questions. And that could be easily a whole new line of symbioses we didn't know existed before. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Matt. Yeah, it's just like, you know, sometimes you just you have the right kind of assemblage of people who are curious about these things and you look at it a different way and all of a sudden those, yeah, those like new ideas like come to the fore where they may not have actually originated to begin with. Yeah. And just the fact that you can find remnants of a mycorrhizal symbiont or even, like you said, fossilized sugars inside these these fossils, I mean, that would assume, or at least I assume that would require a, a specific kind of fossilization uh, process, right? I mean, not every fossil is going to yield the same results. So you, there's, there's a lot of uh, just knowing where to look and what kind of processes would produce uh, a fossil of that sort, right? Yeah, and that's another exciting thing that came out of just my career, I guess. Uh, coming at it from a non-fossil-centric standpoint, I was really ignorant for like how the fossilization process worked. <laughs> and the fossils, fungi are actually one of the key elements to this idea of how fossilization takes place. Some of those symbionts only live for like two weeks uh, after their host plant were to die. And so the presence of those symbionts in these fossilized roots indicates that these plants and the fungal symbiote themselves were actually mineralized either as the plant was alive or just very soon after the plant had died. So basically in a matter of a week, these things turn from living biologic tissues to partially mineralized crystalline life form, you know, clean versions of a life form. And that was surprising to me. As a geologist, I thought fossilization would take place over like tens of thousands of years, maybe hundreds of thousands of years deep within the Earth's crust. But here, these fossils are suggesting they're basically mineralized where they grew, like as a forest. And then to, to back that up, it may be a bit shocking, um, and it certainly was to me. So we found a, a modern analog for that type of process, and it occurs at Yellowstone National Park. Trees today living near these really vibrant hot springs can become mineralized, like within weeks or days. Huh. And so 
this living fossilization process does take place. But you're right to say that it's not true of everything. So like Petrified Forest National Monument has a, a vast array of fossilized wood from the Triassic period, roughly 230 million years old, um, slightly younger. But those are slightly different fossils. Those are more we call petrification. So those are actually fossilized deep within the Earth's crust over that 10,000-year time span I mentioned before. So you get completely different information out of that kind of a fossil than you do out of the fossils that I work on in Antarctica, which we call we call those things permineralizations. And those fossils are preserved at the cellular scale, for like anatomy, so like yeah. wood and you can see wood cells. I mean, I was just, I was actually measuring tree rings today on some Triassic wood from Antarctica, and you can see individual cells of the wood that makes it up. And if you looked at, say, leaf mats from a peat deposit, you'd find all the morphological characters of a leaf um, that you'd see under a microscope. And then that preservation is actually owing to the fact that they're also preserved at the molecular scale. So there's kind of a scaling up factor. You preserve them so well at these fine scales, then when you kind of zoom back out, you look at the whole fossil as a whole, it's incredibly well preserved. It looks like a tree. It looks like a leaf. And that's because they are preserved at those incredibly fine scales, like less than a micron or even at the molecular scale. Oh, man, that's so cool. I mean, just the childlike wonder you get to bring to work with you and have to probably temper at times, but geez, that's neat. Yeah, because I have like you know I have like five thousand pounds of fossils in my lab. You know? It's like yeah, exactly. It's it's a it's a way you have to really take care to parse out like a specific project in mind. Otherwise, you can get carried away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see getting dragged down pretty quickly in that pit hole. But uh, so okay, Antarctica. Y- you've said this a couple of times now. That's where the majority of your work is currently taking place. Um, you know, that's a weird thing to think about. Every time I hear it, I get chills. You know, I think of ice caps and I think of glaciers and just terrible cold temperatures. But, you know, that wasn't always the case. Antarctica once sustained uh, a decent variety of life, correct? So what what time period are we looking at here? And, and what has been the history of Antarctica that, you know, once allowed it to support life, but today makes it a, a snowball? Yeah, okay, these are great questions. So, <laughs> yeah, so the uh, time period I'm focusing on, like, right now, like, we'll be doing, uh, I'm, I'm going back to Antarctica this uh, Thanksgiving, so on, the, on November 23rd. Cool. We are studying uh, basically fossil plants that lived between 280 million years ago and 240 million years ago. And what we're doing is we're focusing on this uh, transition in North history of the largest mass extinction in the history of life. It's called the end Permian Biotic Crisis. Like 95% or more of all species on Earth, on, on the oceans and the land, uh, went extinct. And we kind of have an idea for why. We have a best guess. It was a major volcanic period. Um, but we don't know for sure what these uh, extinction-level drivers were uh, for these different ecosystems. So we're trying to figure that out from these fossil plants in Antarctica, which, oddly enough, represent a polar ecosystem even that far back in time. Antarctica, even though the continental plates have shifted throughout time, it's, re- it's remained at the South Pole for a good chunk of the last half billion years. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's a funny quirk of tectonic history that it just kind of hangs around the South Pole, rotates around a little bit. It moved northward in the Jurassic 180 million years ago and then promptly came back south again. And so this, this re- represents another polar ecosystem, basically an extinct biome on our planet. And we're trying to figure out how that ecosystem responded to these really extreme changes in greenhouse gas concentrations. But it, all that does say, though, that Antarctica in the past was vegetated at many different time intervals, and so it was far more warm and humid than it currently is today, even at the polar latitudes. Like, it getting more warm and humid doesn't mean it shifted 
towards the equator in terms of its position, the climate was that extreme, that warm. It actually hosts forested ecosystems near 90 degrees south. A neat thing, too, so there, there are, there's about 400 million years of a fossil record of plants in Antarctica, almost the entirety of the evolutionary history of vascular plants on land. One of the neat things about that record, you can pick and choose different neat, like, <laughs> but one of the neat things is uh, in the Miocene, about 14 million years ago, there is a whole array of mummified, basically freeze-dried plants, a freeze-dried ecosystem that exists on some of the mountaintops in Antarctica, preserving a southern beech forest that looks very similar to the Argentine side of Patagonia today. Wow. And that forest encroached upon the interior of the continent of Antarctica about 14 million years ago during this really brief warm spell when the West Antarctic ice sheet receded by large amounts and that became forested. And then subsequently, climate cooled once more and those ice sheets came back. And what we get are kind of these high altitude ecosystems that are preserved simply because they haven't been eroded by glaciers. And so you get this really neat climate ecology archive in Antarctica, high sensitivity records of climate, like in the 14 million year old mummified plants. Um, and then these major extinction intervals, like what we're looking at 240 to 280 million years ago. And then you get some of the first forests on Earth. You get some of those plant lineages preserved about 400 million years ago. Jeez. Yeah. That's crazy. So Antarctica has seen multiple cycles of different biomes appearing and disappearing and all of them linked to massive changes in climate and you know not so much position but the the weirdest thing to me to think about is regardless of how warm things were anything living at the poles would have to deal with the tilt of the earth so you're thinking about entire uh, vegetative ecosystems that had to deal with 24 hours of daylight in the summer and 24 hours of darkness in the winter that had to have put an extreme challenge on the uh, physiology of these photosynthetic organisms, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, and that's something we don't have a good answer for. I mean, we knew they existed in those kinds of light conditions. And we know the light conditions existed because that's a fixed parameter based upon your latitude and the tilt of the Earth's axis. And so, you know, these things lived in extreme conditions. Like, it's, it's equally extreme to think of a plant trying to grow continuously for like five months and 24 hours of sunlight. There's no, from what we can understand at least, there's no obvious, like, period of respite um, for photosynthesis. <laughs> and um, as an organism, a photoautotroph, I mean, you're limited by water and nutrients like anything else. And so it doesn't seem as simple as turn on the lights and they just grow forever and then they stop. But maybe it is. We, we just don't have a good idea for what that looks like. I have a suspicion that there's probably some period of dormancy that is invoked in these, in these plants, but we have no evidence to support that just yet. Hmm. That's, again, just so bizarre to think about, but so exciting, too, for someone on the ground uncovering these and going, wow, what? how different must this have been? So one of the big things that, you know, one of the reasons I, we reached out and got in touch was uh, this recent discovery of an entire fossilized forest. Now, that's strange, especially because you're probably trudging across tundra. No, yeah. you're definitely trudging across tundra and, and just dealing with the, the harsh elements, but also finding evidence of life that was there. Uh, tell us a little bit about this recent discovery of, of an entire forest fossilized. How did that happen and what was it like? Oh, yeah. It's it always is surprising. So um, <laughs> as a group, we found basically half of the fossil forests that are, exist on the continent of Antarctica. So we've, we've found numerous ecosystems like this that have been fossilized in the fossil record. 
what became really notable about this one, though, what was like, really special about this ecosystem is that it's the oldest forest we've ever, we've ever found. So it was surprising. We were working, um, so first time, the way we can kind of tell relative ages of things is in the stratigraphic record, you know, there are different layers of sedimentary rocks, and they basically align themselves on the oldest at the bottom and youngest at the top. And so we were working in a succession of these rocks, which we felt were, you know, lower down in the stratigraphic column. So they were the oldest rocks. And we didn't expect there to be fossils here <laughs> at all. Because we worked, you know, we've worked between 74 degrees south latitude and 87 degrees south latitude. We've covered an immense array of, a- of area. And we just didn't expect to find anything here. But it was simply the, it was a path we had to walk through to get to what we, where we knew there were fossil plants. And then uh, our mountaineer, Peter Braddock, found one fossilized tree, and he called me over to it, and it, it was definitely an upright tree. There were roots attached to it, and I thought, well, gee, that's really exciting, one kind of in-situ tree. And so then I became uh, – in-situ just meaning in place. And so then I kind of followed this little bedding plane of these sedimentary rocks where that tree was found, and then one after another, these trees just came popping out. You know, Before, we didn't really see them. But once you kind of develop that visual image for what you're looking for, all of a sudden, this forest literally just kind of pops out at you from the rocks. And so we spent the better part of like four days just traversing this little line of rocks on this very steep cliffside of a mountain and uncovered this fossil ecosystem. And because of its position in the stratigraphy, we knew that it was the oldest one we've found to date. And so that predates this major extinction interval I mentioned earlier. So the significance of that, aside from being the oldest, is that it's a good like baseline for what these polar biomes look like just before this mass extinction took place. Wow. Man, I, I just as a scientist in training and someone that just absolutely loves discovery, those moments must have been you'll, – you'll cherish those forever, I'm sure. So you're looking at these forests. This is Permian-era vegetation. What, what kind of species or what kind of plants – made up this biome i mean it, it definitely wasn't angiosperms but uh you know if you do you have a handle on what kind of species you were finding or at least lineages yep exactly and so they're they're the extinct uh, plant group of the seed ferns and the morphogenous like the morphological shape you know the, the shape form of this plant was the glossopterids so this is a very successful lineage uh it covered um the supercontinent of gondwana which comprises the continents of south america Africa, India, Australia, and Antarctica. Glossopteris as a plant group covered pretty much most of that landmass, roughly 35 degrees south latitude to the pole, existing in climates that range from, say, semi-arid deserts in India, or what is now India, to, yeah, polar temperate forests in Antarctica, to kind of like mid-latitude temperate rainforests in Argentina. So it's a widely successful plant, and it has this really unique canopy structure where it grows between 20 or grew between 20 and 40 meters tall, has these really large tongue-shaped leaves, like similar to like tropical plants, these really broad leaves, low leaf vein density, and they grow on these little whorls on these shoots that come out from it. So it's a really unique, conspicuous plant with uh, reproductive organs like the seed ferns are very interesting characters to these different reproductive organs. You know, they're very much fern-like in how they are shaped, but they produce seeds, so they're not a fern. And that was the, that was the dominant tree lineage in the Permian. We know it as one morphogenus, but really we think that there are probably multiple species in here. Glossopterus, we think, is more of like a concept plant, mm. uh, an actual true genus. 
And the difficulty in parsing that out is just the difficulty in piecing together these fossil organisms from the array of different plant organs we find, because we don't find all of them attached to each other. You know, we might find a reproductive, reproductive organ attached to a leaf at some point, and that's great. And then we might find the leaf and the reproductive organ attached to like a piece of wood or a stem. And then we can start linking together these different parts that we're seeing. But it takes a long time and a lot of almost luck of trying <laughs> Yeah, refine that that you know the species level concept to this glossopterid plant but that was the main plant in the permian by the time you get to the triassic after the extinction it gets really exciting we like three years ago we found the most diverse leaf fossil site on the continent in the triassic and there following this mass extinction we find more seed ferns of a different morphogenus called dicaridium we find conifers uh extinct species of ginkgo a whole slew of different plants, cycads, a whole new array of fern species that we, you know, we don't see in the Permian. So just this, this like ensemble of a variety of different types of plants. Hmm, that's insane, man. I mean, yeah, just alone the challenges of trying to, like you said, piecing together a species concept from fragments of an organism, and the luck involved in finding the right types of fossils to kind of get into that. But then. You know, just to look at this ecosystem through time and see that it kind of feels to me what you're describing is that as soon as the opportunities are there, life took advantage, life diversified. And, you know, so be it if it was at the polar region of the globe, life persists, right? Yeah, exactly. It was crazy, too. You know, some of those lineages that came back to the pole in the Triassic, they're much older than where we find them in Antarctica. We know them from, say, the late Permian in Germany, which at the time was near the tropics. So these plants lived happily in a tropical forest prior to this mass extinction. And then after the extinction interval, they just took over and came marching south. Hmm. All of a sudden, they wind up in our neck of the woods in the Triassic. Almost like following a reverse diversity gradient. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's, and it's really you know, so. And then looking at the tree ring uh, with, I'm doing a bit of dendro, not true dendro chronology. I'm not annual, you know, not getting annual calendar years in these rings, but this cross matching them, you get a sense for that level of diversity in the ecosystem. Also pertains to a level of different functional diversities too. Some of these trees exhibit clear differences in how sensitive they are year to year, and so we can see that too in the in the ring width analyses of the of the actual trees in these forests. Which is just fascinating. Uh, we don't we we see less diversity of that kind of plant to plant or plant to environment response in the Permian. They seem more stressed overall. But then by the time you get to the Triassic, it's a much more cosmopolitan place, hmm. even at the poles. Yeah, that's an, that's really exciting too. I mean, because when you start getting into like you said, the functional groups or types of these plants, you really kind of uncovering a lot about the the functioning and the ecology of that ecosystem at that time and. I, you know, I keep saying it, but geez, goosebump moments, just, it's like having a time machine, you're just lacking the ability to go back and walk in there. Yeah, exactly. And it's just a matter of like, just figuring out those questions that you can ask. Like, you know, the, one of the functional diversity elements we look at is kind of banal, I think, but it's, I think it's actually really important. It's the leaf habit, the leaf longevity of these plants. When we first found evidence of fossil plants in Antarctica in 1910, 1912, it kind of took the botany world by storm. Oh my gosh, there are plants that once lived at the South Pole. That's crazy. And then we found more of these kind of polar fossils in, in the Canadian Arctic archipelago. And so this debate raged on in the botany world about what kind of plants could these have been. 
who would be a successful plant to live at the polar latitudes. And for a long time, we thought they were deciduous. Reasoning being that if you had leaves on your tree in the polar winter, you'd be losing all the CO2 from respiration. Plus, you'd have a bunch of yummy leaf matter for insects to eat. And so you must have been deciduous. And then we found these like leaf mat accumulations in Antarctica. And that seemed to back up this idea of uh, deciduousness. And so that was the kind of understanding when I came in and looking at the chemistry of this stuff, we found that a lot of these plants were actually more aligned with the evergreen side of the leaf spectrum. Huh. And that there was a deciduous and evergreen kind of mix. And then we, by actually looking at these in their forestry context, we can begin as looking at how the forest structure and composition change with kind of different environments like lake margin, river margin, you know, middle of a floodplain kind of a situation. And we found that that functional diversity element of leaf habit actually formed a gradient along those environmental gradients as well. And so now we know that both evergreen deciduous plants lived at the pole in the Permian. And moreover, that that was actually a, a seemingly an important element of functional diversity that explains some of the distributions of these plants. Uh, dude. You just you're speaking to functional trait ecologists very deeply with this, and and again being able to bring in this my my early obsession with paleobotany. But geez, I mean to think that to the layperson you see a fossil and you go, well, how do they know? But again, the detective work that has to go into that. But also, you know, just as the laws of physics haven't changed, the laws of chemistry haven't changed. It kind of sounds to me like the laws of ecology are there. It's just the players change, but. You know, almost you're seeing a convergent evolution through time to different kinds of scenarios. You know, they're going to breed similar survival strategies in in the way life is structured, at least on this planet. Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating point. Like one, if I had all the time in the world and infinite funding, like one of the neat questions I would ask on that same theme would be like in the Rhiney Church, you know, the earliest terrestrial ecosystem on Earth. Like how, you know, when these plants first emerged as vascular plants? Do they have symbioses with whom? How do they develop their different functional traits? You know, these are really like fundamental questions on plant evolution. That would be a really fascinating thing to study. We can study an aspect of it in Antarctica. You know, we're kind of focusing on more of a polar ecosystem just because of its curious latitudinal position over time. But there are so many questions like that that you raise that you could address in the fossil record too. You just have to, you have to find a way to look at it. You know, you have to find a way to access the material and have the funding and resources to study. But those questions are out there and the, the fossil preservation is there in the record. You know, there's enough of it. Like the stuff I worked on in Ethiopia, you know, there's a permineralization record of fossil plants there throughout the Cenozoic, you know, last 60 million years. And so there's a fascinating questions of like biogeography and phytogeography you could address there, for example. You know, like yeah. it's, it's out there. Oh, man. I mean, funding and resources could be a topic in and of itself, but I think it goes back to something you said earlier, just about the diversity and getting as many different kinds of eyes and backgrounds looking at this stuff. But, you know, it's just so fascinating to me and why I love talking to paleontologists so much is like you're really telling the story of life. You're telling the story of how we got here. And that's why these sorts of inquiries are so important, because if we can understand how we got here, we'll have a better picture about where we're going, perhaps, or at least an idea of how life can cope or respond or even not respond to the changes we're now wreaking on the, uh, uh, on the, the biosphere. It's, it's, your work is so important, man. <laughs> That's really well said. I, I fully agree with you. It definitely provides that historical context. You know, I mean, we can glean so much of that interesting context by looking at like the geologic record, you know, cause we have that kind of beginning, middle and end of these different events. And so, yeah, yeah I, it's a really well taken point. 
Wonderful. Well, you've already mentioned it, but you're going back. This is a new discovery. There's more discoveries to be made. I mean, what's on the horizon for your lab and your work? I mean, what are you, what, what's the next steps and what are you looking for the next time you go back? So um, we want to focus on this extinction interval. We want to focus on how these forests change their composition. I kind of outlined it in broad strokes, but you know, we don't know a lot of the nuances for how these forests change during this extinction interval. We don't know the exact timing of turnovers of different plants. So what we're going to do this year is focus on this like stratigraphic interval that comprises the extinction. We're going to have access to helicopters, which allows us to actually uh, travel to different mountain ranges that we weren't able to land last year with the plane. And so I think we're going to have great success in just kind of focusing in on this one stratigraphic interval and really sampling it in high resolution, sampling volcanic ashes, because one of the underlying questions is how old these fossils are and the the time range of these changes. And so there's lots of volcanic ashes in this trigraphic record, and we use that to provide numerical ages on the rocks themselves. So that's going to be part of our work, too, in this upcoming year. And then in the long run, kind of twofold, uh, more of a global sense for like biogeography and phytogeography. I want to link up this research in Antarctica to those other continents I mentioned, uh, South Africa, um, South America. I'll be going to Argentina in March with a couple of undergraduate students. And we'll carry on that research um, at latitude, paleo latitudes that would have been about 40 degrees south latitude. So we're going to try to build kind of a hemispheric gradient in what these ecosystems may have looked like and then through time as well. So, yeah, South Africa, Argentina, and maybe eventually in the future, like parts of Australia as well. Excellent, man. I love it. Keep it up. And, and please, uh I look forward to everything that's coming out from this research. This is super exciting. Uh, if people want to reach out and find out more about your work or just, you know, kind of follow the progress as things come online, how do you recommend they uh, find more out about you? Sure. My uh, webpage on, uh, at UWM, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Department of Geosciences, you'll find my personal webpage there under our faculty listings. Um, we also have our news page on the UWM website, and that's where we publish the kind of the latest news that comes out of our different lab groups. And so that's probably the most easy, easy way to access like fresh information as it comes off the presses. And I try to publish as regularly as I can. So, and I try to put that material when it's freely available on different platforms like ResearchGate. But, you know, Google Scholar is a good way of getting access to some of those scientific publications that we put out. Excellent. Well, I'll uh, be putting up links to your website and everything so people can stay as up to date as possible. But Thank you so much for talking to us. This was an enlightening and exciting conversation. And again, I mean it when I say I look forward to everything that's coming out of your lab. It's uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, likewise, Matt. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Cheers. Yeah, bye. Wow. A lot of food for thought there. I love those deep time perspectives. It's such a cool way to kind of appreciate broad timescales that are, you know, kind of unfathomable on the timescales that we as humans appreciate. But with fossil discoveries, such as those that Dr. Goldbranson and others are making, you know, we get a really unique window back into a time period. And not only is it just interesting for the sake of science, it's helping us understand how climate change affects life on this planet. And that's something we desperately need to get our heads wrapped around as man-made climate change continues all right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode. There's some great stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks, including the question show. I'm just going to say it here to get myself committed to sit down and record it. I'm going to put out the question show next week, so stay tuned. That ties me to it. I have to do it. I just need to find the time, but we'll make it happen. Again, indefensiveplants.com. Check out the donate button. Check out stickers. Also, patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. Consider becoming a patron. And finally, youtube.com slash indefensiveplants. Go check out our videos, hit subscribe, and stay tuned. There's some really cool stuff 
great projects in the works. All right, everyone. I hope you have a great week. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios.